Okay, so we just watched three movies that are very closely uh, thematically related. They're related uh, by uh, creative force and vision. Lock, Stock, Two Smoking Barrels, which was influenced by Pulp Fiction, which was influenced by The Wild Bunch. Which yep. one do you want to do? Well, I think it's time we go back to Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. Okay. So, All right, good. So I am Bentley. I'm Samuel. And this is the Review Podcast. Podcast. About shotguns. About shotguns. Yeah, we should have shotguns for this thing. <laughs> okay, um, so I have a confession. I want to start with a confession. And you guys know that I hate uh, kind of the holier-than-thou fanboys who build themselves up by acting like they've got a spin that nobody else has, that somehow they have you know, more purity or, or a, a better uh, insider view. And I gotta say that the last twenty years, I have been a little like that with Pulp Fiction. You know, I I loved Kill Bill so much, and I really liked Reservoir Dogs. And then you know, I saw the last three, and they were just kind of this literally bloody mess. And as time went on, and more and more people just said, "I love Pulp Fiction," sort of the way we do with. Star Wars, or some people do with Lebowski. You know, it just it it kept rising on the pedestal, and I resisted. As it rose, I resisted more and more and more. And I hadn't seen this movie in a long time. It feels like it's always on Netflix yeah. because it's considered this classic, right? Whatever you and I say about it today will not change its status. No one can knock it off the pedestal at this point. We can't make a dent. There's we, no dent to there's be made. There's no dent to whether be made. we liked it or not. Whether we liked it or not. So this is really just about me looking in the mirror and admitting I was wrong. It's a really good movie. It's really, really good. I mean, here we are. We are we are at the 25th anniversary of Pulp Fiction. Oh, my God. It's been a quarter of a century since we had to clean the brains out of the back seat. <laughs> and, you know, this movie comes out two years after I was born. You know, I didn't. I grew up in a world shaped by this film. For my generation, for Generation X, this is our Citizen Kane. This is the vindication. This is yes. Everything that we paid attention to, all the silly Viewmasters, all yes. the all of that, it all meant something. Tarantino is our Orson Welles. He's the guy who justifies all of our pop culture love, all of it. Yep. And it. I mean, it's set in L.A. It's a celebration of film. It is a. It, it film is what these characters discuss. They're discussing pop culture. It's one of the most important topics that they, they talk about. Uma Thurman's character is entirely shaped by this previous life experience as being uh, only an actress who tasted success but didn't get there. Yeah, she filmed a pilot. She filmed a pilot. <laughs> Which the is Fox hilarious. Force 5. <laughs> like, and, and, but you can tell that Tarantino doesn't treat this character like a joke because her pilot didn't get taken off the air. No, he has reverence for that experience. Yes, because Tarantino, now being a creator, a soft, a, this is his sophomore effort Yes, of in terms of full-length feature films. Yeah. He's written other things. Yeah, he's written right? a bunch of stuff, and he did do some short films before Reservoir Dogs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But this is his second big screen outing as a director. Sasha Free Jones, who's one of my favorite music critics, I almost don't share... Any of his taste, but I have always respected his opinions. He has a great line. He says, you don't view an artist or grade an artist about their longevity or greatness long term until you see the sophomore effort. 
Because everyone can have a brilliant debut. Yeah. Everyone's got one story to tell. Everyone's got right. one great album in them. Right. That's the question true. is, who has ideas left over right. after the big hit single, after the right. Reservoir Dogs, right. after that first album? Mm-hmm. Who can give you a good sophomore effort? Be- and, and like I just confessed, I mean, my problem was I really thought after he had some really... Big misfires, right? Jackie Brown desperately needs 40 minutes cut out of it. And he was just kind of floundering around. He did some interesting things with Rodriguez. But when he does Kill Bill, that, I I still think that's the best movie in his career. Yeah. But boy, Pulp Fiction is a close second. Yeah. And it's such an unfiltered picture into his brain. Like, I try and, <laughs> I try and, sep- I, you know, I... I for a long time, I tried to separate art from artists, but now I'm kind of learning more and more that there's not a whole lot of merit to that in the 21st century where you have so much accessibility to yeah, the artists. Right. And some works are accentuated by being able to tie them mm-hmm. to what you know of these people. Mm-hmm. You know, Quentin Tarantino is not necessarily, I necessarily would want as a long-term friend, <laughs> but to share a beer with, to like talk, to or more of like listen, to listen to him for a well, little while. Well, so a lot of people have said uh, since the 60s in the pop art phase, right, it's kind of a common cocktail party thing to talk about uh, the influence of Andy Warhol. Well, guess what? We're all also living in Tarantino's world, right? We because are. when he hit big, the the big piece of his biography was he was a video store clerk. Yep. Right? That's what allegedly led to this blender of references in his head that he was then putting on the screen. Well, guess what? We all live in that world now where we have GIFs and, and streaming and on-demand movies on our phone that we watch on you know, the bus or the subway to work, and, and we have media incoming and outgoing 24-7. Yeah, there was a time where you had to seek out media. Yeah. You had to look for <laughs> And we're living in Tarantino's world. We're living in a world where media is the most important thing. It's like oxygen, for God's sake. That's, I mean, his rise directly precipitates and makes possible the rise of Superhero movies and all of this other resurgence of nerdity. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. How, how is that possible? Because he is making it cool to know about these things. He's making mm. these conversations about older films cool. And he's making these discussions about Madonna's music cool. And suddenly, mm. none of this feels disposable anymore. He's, I would argue, I mean, again, it's in the mm. title there, Pulp Fiction. Yes. He's telling right. you. Superheroes come from pulp, yes. He's telling you there is no more, or his view, there is no more high art and low art. Right. And you know who else agrees with that? Daft Punk. Well, and I agree with that. <laughs> and I agree with that. Because I was you, raised that way. Because if you can watch <laughs> a symphony on YouTube, yes. is that high art or low art? If I get all dressed up, and go to the Gateway Theater. Yes. They will literally let me buy a ticket. A few months ago, they'd let me buy a ticket to funny cat videos for an hour. They're just going <laughs> to put a bunch right. of cat videos That's on. Right. The, you could wear a tux to I go see. I could wear see. a tux to go see an hour of funny cat videos. <laughs> there is no more high art and low art. There's just good art and bad art. Right. That's and right. He democrat. he's a big part of the yes. democratization of Okay. Of All of that culture. I agree with. I'm not sure that gets us to the Marvel... 
cinematic universe. But that's probably another podcast. Well, it gives us Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> that's a big part of it. Yeah, I'll tell you what. It was weird to see Captain Marvel in the theaters. Yeah, that's a weird double feature. And then watch Pulp Fiction, which, you know, because Captain Marvel is trying to show you Samuel L. in the 90s. And then you go back and actually watch Samuel L. Yeah. in the 90s. Yeah. No, it's, it's... It's a little weird. And it's just so incredible how Tarantino resurrects... John Travolta. He absolutely he, resurrects. He, but he 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 pulls Lazarus out of the cave. He does. He does. And, and we he all proceeds said, to squander it for twenty years. No, he doesn't. No, yes, he doesn't. He does. This movie leads directly to Get Shorty, which is one of my favorites. Okay. Travolta has another twenty years of movies. You can debate about how good you know different ones of them Two are. Two words: Battlefield Earth. <laughs> well. No, he has Get Shorty, and then we're right back into the ground. No, he did a good job in Swordfish. Oh, fine. Which is also something he gets because of Pulp Fiction. And so this is interesting, right? Samuel being the millennial, me being the Gen Xer, you would think I would want to talk at length about Travolta getting revived because, you know... I saw him on Welcome Back, Cotter growing up, and Grease was a big deal to my generation. And yes, when Pulp Fiction scores, the story is about Travolta. But when I go back and watch it, as we did just a few weeks ago, that movie does not work without Samuel L. Jackson's no, character. No, he's the, he's the linchpin it, of morality in this it, film. It does not work. He is often moving the story forward, and... At this point, Travolta's role looks pretty light. It's pretty light. You know, he's he's kind of a doofus. He doesn't really advance things. No, he reacts to things. He reacts to things. It's when Jules. He, yeah. Jules is the linchpin of this story, and if you don't cast Samuel L. Jackson and you don't have somebody who can carry that weight, I do think this movie can fall apart. Absolutely. No, it can't survive just on the strength of script alone. No. You have to get there. You have to get the performances out of these people that you need. And I think it's a testament to Tarantino's abilities as a director at the time that he's able to pull all of this stuff together. Because I don't necessarily know if he could do it today. That might be a conversation for another day. No, I I think I'd like to have that conversation in this podcast because uh, I really don't like uh, his three most recent movies, right? Inglorious Bastards and Django. And um, Hateful Eight, right? I've watched all of them. I gave them their time. Uh, Two of those three I saw on the big screen. And I came away feeling very much like I did after we just watched The Wild Bunch, which was a huge influence on Tarantino. Like, I could see the big idea. Some of the scenes I really liked. Uh, It was well shot. And yet, it doesn't quite cross the finish line for me. Like, it's missing some impact. Right, Each th- of those three most recent Tarantino movies, they end in all kinds of uh, bloodbath violence that I just don't care about. Yeah. Right, There's something missing. And when I go back and watch Pulp Fiction, it's there. Yeah. Right? It's not missing. And so what I... Well, do you want to react to that? I'm just always kind of... I think, I think the difference between... Or one of the many differences between modern Tarantino and Tarantino of 25 years ago is that... I think something people forget about Pulp Fiction because there is so much blood and violence is that a lot of this movie, there's a lot of non-violent conflict resolution in this film. Yes, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of things that are resolved through shootouts, but there's a lot of negotiation. There's a lot of concealment. There's a lot of hard work put forth by characters to make a situation 
disappear or go away or be less severe. Yes. Like, you could just have Travolta shoot Marvin in the face and then Jules freaks out and then they get cornered by the cops and it ends in a shootout. But instead, they go to Tarantino's house. Yeah. They do the hard work with Harvey Keitel directing them to clean up the pieces of brain in the back of the car. You pretty know, please. Pretty please with sugar on top. <laughs> they dress up like a couple of dorks and they get away with it. And they're on the right. Right. So that's what I don't like about the three most recent Tarantinos and what I do like about Pulp Fiction. When I'm watching Pulp Fiction for the first time in 20 years, it's actually way quieter than its reputation. It's much quieter. Right? It's, it's I mean, a... like the shootout at the end of Django is just stupid. Yeah, it is stupid, it has sloppy. No way to it. There's no weight. It's gory, and there's so much in Pulp Fiction, as you say, that gets resolved without a shootout. There's really, I mean, there's like one shootout. Yeah, yeah. With with the kid drug dealers. That's it. Yeah. And the rest of the time, I was amazed at how quiet this movie is. Yeah. We came away uh, from Pulp Fiction talking about the dialogue and the banter and the violence. But you look at it 25 years later, in the culture in which we live now, where there are things like, you know, lock, stock, and two smoking barrels. Where no one ever shuts up. And inglorious bastards. Yeah. You know, where there's mayhem and killing everywhere. And, you know, we do have the Marvel Cinematic Universe where there's action that's relentless for two and a half hours. You go back and watch Pulp Fiction now on Netflix, because it's always there. It's so quiet. There are all kinds of close-ups that he does as a director, no dialogue, and it's not gory. They're close-ups that just, uh, they, they give you a very detailed beat, and they do illuminate character, and they are beautifully shot, and there's a whole bunch of this movie that's quiet yeah. and quite beautiful. And it's a skill I think he perfects by the time of Kill Bill. I mean, you can see his ideas starting to form in that scene where Bruce Willis is searching for a weapon, you know, to, to, yes. to, to get right. back at the pawn shop guys. Right. Right. You know, right. he doesn't say a word during that. You've no. got the music going, yeah. and you've got some of the background noise of them, yeah. you know, hooting and hollering. In the basement. In the basement with the gimp. <laughs> um, but it's just him, like, looking at different weapons, and, and he's trying to figure out what's the best approach. And then when he sees what he really needs, <laughs> you actually don't see it at the same time he does because the camera's positioned where he's looking. He's looking directly yeah, yeah. at the it's camera. An shot, yeah. And again, he hasn't said any words and he doesn't say anything. He doesn't say like bingo. He doesn't say, yeah, that's it. Yeah. You just, the camera reverses. You can see through his eyes and it's a big samurai sword, yeah. you know, like, yeah. and, and Tarantino perfects that, the silence that makes his dialogue more, important when it happens and i feel like he's lost control of that yeah no i can't tell you a moment of silence and contemplative meditation in any of the three movies you just named well there are some scenes i i remember uh when you see the um wagon that they're taking uh where they will stop at the station that basically becomes the setting for the rest of hateful eight like there's a shot where they're like racing a winter storm and they're going up this rise and it's all snowy and you can see the storm behind them and i really wondered if there was any cgi to that because it's just such a stunning quiet beautiful kind of freeze frame of the environment that they're in so there there are little tiny moments but they get lost Mm -hmm. in the later tarantino stuff in other words tarantino has sort of become 
a caricature of what we thought he was in 1994-95. Well, people took, I think, the wrong lessons away from this film. You know, they, they, they see this film and they hear the snippy dialogue and they see the cool shootouts and everyone remembers these iconic lines from Samuel L. Jackson, but what they forget is that Jewel's ultimate path is one of nonviolence. Yes, Jules right. Jules starts, out, man. Jules starts the film as the Ezekiel 2517 guys, but people forget that's not where he ends. No, he's out. He's out. He's just going to walk the earth, man. Yeah. Like Kane and Kung Fu. And he's and he's the only one who comes out unscathed. Mm-hmm. Right? The movie is directly telling you that you should do unto others as... Yeah, because Marcellus, you know, he's going to be living with that for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> what happens but the fa- but Bruce the Willis, shop? Bruce Willis could leave. He could escape. He could be scot-free. He doesn't yeah, have to yeah. stay. He could yeah, just yeah. go. But because he goes back, he doubles back, saves Marcellus, clears his debt, Gets out of all that happens is he's no longer allowed to go to L.A. But he doesn't have to look over his shoulder the rest of his so life. So there are two characters who get away scot free. Yeah, yeah, and both of them are giving up a life of violence, right? Bruce yes. Willis is giving up being a boxer, ri- the rigged boxing. The game. first thing that happens in his boxing match is he kills a dude. Yeah, that's true. Like right. it's, so it's it all, all about killers. It begins with violence and ends in silence. Yeah, and that's how yeah. it should be. And instead, the end of Django is a house exploding. Right. Oh, and the other two people who get away scot free are uh, Bunny and um, and what's his face, right? The Honey Bunny and and uh, yeah. Pumpkin. Yeah, no, because it's, uh... because they don't commit violence in the robbery at the yeah. restaurant, and Samuel L encourages them to walk away clean, and they do. I can't believe Tim Roth hasn't been a bigger star. This is so critical. <laughs> well, he did get to do uh, Lie to Me. We like that. Well, Shout we out love, to Truman. We love him in uh, Planet of the Apes as well. Yeah, he's great. He's great in that. No, and Tim Roth has, uh, speaking of Marvel films, he got to he got to be uh, the abomination in the... Yeah, in the, well, if you like that movie, don't watch the honest trailer for it. Yeah. <laughs> because they savage that. So, but it it's... <laughs> Pulp Fiction is masterful. It's, it is brilliant. It is everything that people say about it. And then it kind of just... Uh, I think what we might take umbrage with it, if we take umbrage with anything, is not any fault of Pulp Fiction. It's its legacy. It's its children, okay. including Tarantino's own films. Right. I would agree with because that. Because you found the people who loved this film insufferable, and now we don't like the Tarantino films that he's just kind of making in a vacuum. Yeah, right. I think our right. problem is not the film itself, but the misinterpreted legacy that even its creator doesn't understand exactly so that's exactly why we do this podcast is to go back and double check right we're checking the cultural verdict yeah right and so i agree that pulp fiction should be in the canon um, but you really should go back and watch it again because it's got a lot of nice moments it's worth more than all the little memes it's been split into and all the individual lines that you remember from it like this is a movie that really deserves to be seen start to finish it is a beautiful piece of art yeah uh, and so i'm interested you know it, it's obviously a big deal to my generation but i'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about the legacy since you grew up in the shadow of it now, like, can you remember like what you thought about it when you first saw it well i first saw it on a a a school bus trip because i had a laptop and you had given me a bunch of dvds to watch this was a college trip that i was taking in high school with a bunch of 
other members of my oh, yeah, yeah, high yeah. school I grew up with. I we, remember that we spent, trip. We spent a spring. <laughs> yeah, 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 I remember that trip too. <laughs> Some people don't. <laughs> look, man. Anyway, look, I didn't do anything wrong. I helped the kids who didn't remember anything. Afterwards. And I was not a supervisor. I was nowhere near that bus. No, but I'm sure you got a phone call at some point. Yeah, right? that oh, was fun. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway, I didn't do anything wrong. I sat in the back of the bus and watched Pulp Fiction. Okay, and so do you and remember how I, it hit you? It was not... A Thunderbolt. I thought it was really great. I thought it was awesome. Huh. But I guess I didn't understand the historical context. Yeah. And it felt just kind of like in line with everything else that I already kind of loved. Not realizing that without Pulp Fiction, you probably don't get a scene in Reign of Fire about no. uh, them doing Star Wars. No, you, know, you, you don't. You don't get Christian Bale and Gerard no, Butler reenacting Star you Wars. do not. That's so true. I think I could <laughs> see the DNA, but I didn't realize yeah. this is the source. Yes, this is, is the beating yeah. heart. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember if I saw this or Reservoir Dogs first, and I don't remember. Hmm. But this was the first time I'd seen it in years. I think my favorite Tarantino is still probably Reservoir Dogs, Mm. followed very closely by Kill Bill, followed then by this. But they're all three. But it's not because yeah, it's not because any of them lack anything. It's just my personal taste of I really, really, really like Twelve Angry Men with guns, which is what (laughs) while they're bleeding, which is what Reservoir Dogs is. Yes, that's exactly. And then I really, really, really like silly kung fu nonsense, which an anime reference, yeah, which is what Kill Bill is. So it's just a question of what's closest to your personal taste, you know. Which is why you know I've actually stopped arguing about this stuff online. Yeah, Uh, you know, like. Like, what's your favorite Coen Brothers movie or what's your favorite Tarantino? Because, you know, my generation got to do that for probably too many years. And now, you know, we've got the podcast. We're saying our piece. It's really nice. I like having the discussion with you. But you know what? Deciding of those three movies, which is the top, how pointless is that? It doesn't. Those three movies are great. And this is the stuff that I left behind my sophomore year of college yeah. because I had a friend group that was doing that. Yeah. And it became like, not to get like super deep here on the podcast for a second, but it became a knife fight. It became, yeah, it's not... it became this moment of like, who can get the last intellectual word in on this right. movie stuff? And it, guys, we have a podcast about movies. It don't matter that much. It's just movies. Well, and it's your own opinion, which yeah. everyone has a right to. So the problem with the social media and the way we are all living in a Tarantino world where, you know, like at the beginning of Reservoir Dogs, they're all sitting around a diner talking about pop culture, okay? Yeah. If you can keep it to the appreciation level, that's great. But when you start feeling like, well, it matters, like what's ranked number two versus number four, yeah. and it turns into a knife fight... Then you're actually ruining the art. Yeah. You're ruining the the canon. You're ruining the appreciation for something that's interesting and beautiful. And I'm just I'm just not at that. I just don't care enough anymore at this point to to have these fights. Like there was a what, how I always sum it up to people is I used to be the kind of guy who would go, <gasps> "You've never seen Star Wars," and then you know whatever. But to me, it's like now Wait, when someone says, you've "Never seen Star Wars." No, but when someone now says, <laughs> you know, that they haven't seen Star Wars, it's like, oh. You should really check it out. I really love the films. Yeah, I yeah. think they still have a lot to say to us now. And, you know, check up on the person. See if they've gone and done it. But you yeah. can't make them feel like they're living half a life because they don't have the same appreciation for yes. this specific media right. that you do. It's just right. not worth... We have so many bigger problems in our world. <laughs> yes, it's we This do. sort of thing is just... <laughs> 
I care deeply about art. I care deeply about film. But at the end of the day, you got to be able to close the top of the laptop. You got to be able to turn the right. phone off. And, you got to be able to right to walk away. And so I hope that's the the sense that we can convey in this podcast is that appreciation. And you know, seeing Pulp Fiction again after many many years is another step in getting to that. Yep. For me, because you know what? I'm not going to argue with somebody over which is greater, Kill Bill or Pulp Fiction, because they're both great. Yeah, they're just both great movies. And I really appreciated uh, feeling that again by watching Pulp Fiction. So Yeah, it's brilliant, well-made, well-crafted, knows exactly what it wants to be, and then you know, doesn't overstay its welcome. Should uh, we, uh, we sh- so we have a few minutes left. I haven't talked about the soundtrack at all. Soundtrack, of course, uh, huge, but I was going to actually ask, like, who's your favorite character or what's your favorite scene? Oh, that's a good question. I think I think uh, favorite character is Jules, which is an easy answer, but yeah. he's, he's just who the film is built around. Yep. You know, even when he's yep. not on screen, probably has something to do with something. You know, this yeah. the skeleton is, is built around Jules. Yep. Um, I think favorite scene is probably actually trying to get uh, Uma Thurman's heart started again. <laughs> because <laughs> Which I, was shocking to a lot of audiences. Well, that was like, really terrifying. It's so funny because so much of Tarantino's <laughs> violence now lacks punch. We're talking about how the ending of Django is a cartoon. And yeah, yeah. Parts of Kill Bill, even though I like it in Kill Bill, because I think it's used for a different reason in Kill Bill, you know, parts of Kill Bill are literally a cartoon. You know, Violence yes. is not supposed well, to be as hard-hitting in some of this stuff, yeah. some of his later stuff as it is now. But Tarantino really makes you understand the weight and the punch and the severity of the situation that they are in. Well, it's part of what I was saying earlier about how much time this movie takes to set up things. Like a whole bunch of the tension in Pulp Fiction is not from people pointing a gun in somebody's face, but it's the moments in between. And so he spends a lot of time showing you these characters who are panicked because mm-hmm. she's about to die. Yep. Right? It, it, there's, there's like a long uh, one-take shot of them bringing her into the house, and then they've got to look for like the, uh, the nurse's book yeah, yeah. <laughs> through this house that's just a gigantic you know, mess. Yeah. And, and so the tension is from the characters trying to solve a problem in real time. What do humans do when they are under pressure? We always go back to the same always. phrase, but we love it. Always. What happens when you shake the human ant farm? And Pulp Fiction does a masterful job of that. A masterful yeah. job, and I think it's. I think that's the scene where I think... It, it, it That's the best shaking of the ant farm in a film full of great shaking ant farm <laughs> stuff. Well, my uh, scene that shakes the ant farm is when they start the robbery of the... Um, a restaurant, and not at the beginning of the movie, but when we understand that Jules is sitting there with the case, mm-hmm. with the MacGuffin in it, right? Yeah. And Jules has to talk them down, yeah. right? And there are guns pointed, so this is actually a scene where guns are pointed in your face, and it's just based on how cool and commanding the Jules character can be. Yeah, and it's so well-written, and there's so much... He understands the the stakes really, really well, which seems obviously like, duh, he's got a gun pointed at him. But it's the little things, like him telling Honey Bunny to like, you know, when Travolta comes out of the bathroom and Travolta's ready to freak on and, these guys. And he's just a mook, yeah. right? In, in this movie, Travolta really doesn't carry much weight at all. And no. that scene proves it. He just comes out, gun drawn, he's ready to blaze away. He's not thinking. No, 
And he and uh, Jules has this great line where he tells Honey Bunny, he tells her, and this is probably part of his new revelation as yeah. as being somewhat more spiritual. He says, "Point the, the gun, gun at, at me. me." Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's he's trying to keep everything focused on him because he knows if everything's focused on him, then he can get them out of there. Yeah, he's in command. Yeah, yep. It's really great stuff. So, All right. I'm actually getting spine tingling sensations because it's such a good movie and I really did enjoy seeing it again. So all of you Gen Xers who say that Pulp Fiction is your favorite Tarantino but you haven't seen it in 10 years, it's on Netflix. Time to watch it again, baby. Go watch it. Anyway, I'm Samuel. And I'm Bentley. And this has been the re-view. <laughs>